New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Throughout her newest book, Like a Returning Theme in an Opera, Terry Tempest Williams repeats the refrain, My mother left me journals, and all the journals were blank. She speculates, My mother's journals are paper cranes. My mother's journals are paper tombstones. My mother's journals are bones. My mother's journals, when opened by the wind, become wings of birds, white birds. The exploration of the white pages of journals residing neatly on three bookcase shelves is the launch pad from which Terry Tempest Williams rockets into a rainbow of dazzling fireworks of poetry, stories, images, and remembrances in her newest book, When Women were birds. Terry Tempest Williams is a naturalist, environmentalist, and award-winning author. She is a recipient of the Lannan Literary Fellowship in Creative Nonfiction and the 1997 Guggenheim Fellowship, and served as a naturalist in residence at the Utah Museum of Natural History. Her books include Refuge, Red, Patience and Passion in the Desert, Leap, an unspoken hunger, finding beauty in a broken world, and when women were birds. She divides her time between Castle Valley, Utah, and Moose, Wyoming. Join us for the next hour as we explore the nature of living and loving with our guest, Terry Tempest Williams. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Terry, welcome. Justine, it's such a gift to be with you. I just feel this is this ongoing spiral of thought with you. It truly is. We first met more than two decades ago. When I remember. You know, I was scared to death. I was so nervous, and um, and I as was I. And I just feel that it's been an ongoing conversation, and I feel as though my mother and Mimi are sitting around this table with us. Oh, yes, yes, and your mother more vivid than ever, and Mimi, your beautiful, beautiful grandmother who really introduced you to nature in a way, and now you've shared all of that with us, both in your earlier book, Refuge, and I kind of think of this book as a kind of bookend in some ways to that, it's a, a, or an ongoing conversation to that first book, Refuge. I think that's true. And I didn't realize that until I had finished it. You know, I think that 
It's been 25 years since Mother passed, and when I turned the age Mother did when she died, when I turned 54, which was the age Mother was when she died, suddenly I was faced with the story that I had never really dealt with, and that is that my mother left me her journals, and all her journals were blank. Let's describe that. Your mother told you to read her journals when she was dying? She did. It was winter. It was January. She was very close to the end. She was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. She was in bed. I was on top of the bed rubbing her back. She was facing the window. It was a wicked storm outside. And we had been talking about various things, and then she just said, Terry, I'm leaving you all my journals. And I didn't know she kept them. And she said, but you have to promise me that you won't look at them until after I'm gone. I gave her my word. We continued talking. A week later, she passed. A month later, I found myself in the family house alone, missing her terribly. Her absence was her presence, and I thought, now, now is the perfect time. And they were exactly where she said they would be, three shelves of these beautiful cloth-bound journals. Um, Some were linen, some were floral, some were paisley. And I thought, finally, I will know what my mother was thinking. I opened the first one, it was empty. I opened the second one, it was empty. I opened the third journal, it was empty. The fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, all of my mother's journals were blank. How did you feel? What, what was your first depth of feeling about that uh, when you realized that they were blank? Were you angry? Were you uh, puzzled? Were you, what, what was going through your emotional body? I just kept thinking this can't be true. You know, and I kept flipping through them, looking at them, seeing if there were things inside. I just, I thought this can't be. And then I realized, I don't think I realized anything. I think I just, if it felt like a second death. Yes. It felt like a betrayal. It felt like a cruel joke. Um, and then I just, I think I, I couldn't afford emotionally to think about it. And I just gathered them up. Uh, took them home, and through the years wrote in them unceremoniously. And it wasn't until I turned 54, as I said, um, the age mother was when she died, that I thought, okay, what was mother really trying to tell you? When I opened my mother's journals and read Emptiness, it translated to longing, Justine, that same hunger and thirst that mother translated to me. It made me think about how I can rewrite this story. I can create my own story on the pages of my mother's journals. I believe she wanted them read. How do I read them now? Now, you grew up Mormon, and she was Mormon. Your whole family has been part of the Mormon church. And women in the church were encouraged to keep journals. Can you say something about that? Mormon women write, and we are encouraged to keep journals. I would say it's the only thing I've done religiously alongside birth control. And, you know, 
we are told at a very early age that we can keep records. Um, Mormon people are great record keepers, whether it's genealogy or all of the millions of recorded names and birth, death, marriage records that are housed inside the mountains of the Wasatch in Utah. If you go up there, Justine, it's wild. It's something out of science fiction. The mountain's been hollowed. That's where all of the records are stored, microfiche. As children, we would go up there. You can't do that now, but we would peer into those. At the time, they were gates and uh, bars, and we were always told that that's where, um, what were they called? Um, Vault babies lived. And actually, they were I now know, um, conies or pikas that are animals, you know, little, they're like rock rabbits that live in the scree uh, between stones. But, uh, you know, it was a pretty formidable place. That's what we were raised with. And journals were part of that. I was given a journal at a very young age by my great-grandfather when I turned eight and was baptized. Um, it had a lock and key, so my brothers couldn't read it. But that's, that's very deep in the tradition. So it becomes even more curious because Mother knew I kept journals, that I have hundreds of them. She knew that about me. The fact that she left me her journals and all her journals were blank. What was she saying? Was it an act of defiance? Was was it a joke? Um, Was she saying a woman who at 38 was diagnosed with breast cancer and had four children to raise that she didn't have time to think about the past or project into the future. She was too busy living. Um, Was it an indictment of my capacity to reflect and project? I I don't know. You know, it, it still remains a mystery. Was she saying, fill them? Because it's not that my mother was a silent woman. She was a private woman. For me, through the years, the mystery of my mother's blank journals has remained a kaleidoscope that I just keep turning toward the light. Was it this? Was it this? Was it this? And um, you do have some letters from your mother, though, that that articulate how much she appreciated you. Those are just so precious. You've included a couple of them in your writing. My mother's letters are so beautiful, and I think like all of our mother's letters to us, Um, the voices on the page remembered. And my mother was a great letter writer. And uh, I read them often, and they are included in this book. I think to show that it's not that she wasn't articulate. She was extraordinarily articulate. She was discerning. Yes, yes. Early on in your your work, you I, I want to talk about going to you were a school teacher for a while in I think your twenties and um, you taught for five years at something called the Cardin School and your interest was in nature and you were hired to be a teacher of biology. Can you describe a little bit of the conflict that you had in teaching at that school? All I ever wanted to do was be a teacher, and I was able to get a job at the Cardin School in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, Mr. and Mrs. Jeffs were the headmasters. We could not speak one another's first name. We 
were encouraged never to have open-toed shoes. Um, also, we were encouraged to wear hats. My ski hat did not count. <laughs> and they were very strict. And it was a John Birch-type sensibility in the 70s. I remember Brooke and I were going to Alaska. And Brooke um, is your husband. Is my husband. And I had the classroom completely organized, set up. It, I just wanted the children to walk into the class and feel like they were in nature. So there were nests, there were stones. I'd gotten a beehive that where the bees c- could go in and out um, through the window. You can imagine anything wild short of living was in that classroom. Field guides. And then I had in construction paper, biology, the study of life. Voila, the classroom was set. I closed the door. We went to Alaska. I came home. I opened the door. And everything in the classroom was gone. Sterile. And I thought, we've had a major crime here. And I went running down the hall to Mrs. Jeffs and just said, Mrs. Jeffs, something terrible has happened. Everything in the classroom is gone. And she said, yes, there will be no distractions for the children. And furthermore, we will not be calling this class biology. It denotes sexual reproduction, and we will have none of that. So from that day forward, uh, it was known as nature study. Tremendous blow. You had to work within the confines of a very narrow view of the natural world. But you did it, and we'll, we'll talk more about that in just one moment. I'm here with Terry Tempest-Williams. She's the author of When Women Were Birds. And if you'd like to be in touch with her, you can go to her website, coyoteclan.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Justine Willis-Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. here with Terry Tempest Williams. She's the author of When Women Were Birds. You use a quote in your book from Rachel Carson. You say, if uh, you, you quote her as saying, if a child is to keep alive his inborn sense of wonder, he needs the companionship of at least one adult who can share it, rediscovering with him the joy, excitement, and mystery of the world we live in. I think that's such a powerful statement and um, a mandate to all of us in our attitude towards children and uh, to bring them out into nature. 
and to get them out from out their iPods or their their video games. Uh, you talk also in you talk about an incident of sharing your love of whales with the kids. Uh, can you tell us how that went? It was the height of Save the Whale movement. Um, I must have had every possible paraphernalia, from rings to earrings to jewelry of a whale dangling, dangling from my neck. Um, I was very serious about that. I had read uh, Mind in the Waters by Joan McIntyre, the Sierra Club books had published. I had been with my grandmother Mimi on whale watches in Southern California. It was such an important, um, iconic campaign for me. And I was with the children, and I thought, you know, this is something we can talk about in terms of endangered species. So we covered the windows with that blue construction paper, you know, those rolls of paper that you would pull out endlessly. And we created an ocean-bottom sensibility. The class was blue with the sunlight coming through. I had Roger Payne's records, and they were records, where he had the songs of the humpbacked whale. And we had been talking that, you know, the humpbacked whales were threatened, they were in danger, and they have this mournful, beautiful, sonorous song. And let's imagine that we are all whales calling to one another. So I turned off the lights, I put on the record, wahoo, you know, we pushed all the chairs to the side of the room, and the children were swimming all through the room on the floor. Mrs. Jeffs was walking down the hall. She heard this wild bellowing sound. She threw open the door, turned on the lights, ripped off the record, and said, what on earth is going on here? And one of the children stood up and said, why, Mrs. Jeffs, we're whales and we're looking for our mates. And you can imagine how that went across with her. Um, What I remember is that she... I think she must have pulled my ear, took me out into the hallway. We marched down to her office. She sat me down. She said, let me go get Mr. Jeffs. Um, She explained to him what had happened. And then she said, I have one question for you. And you better think very hard about how you're going to answer it. Are you an environmentalist? And I said, I am. And she said, we thought so, and I was fired on the spot. Uh, Then Mr. Jeff said, but Mrs. Jeff, what will we tell the children? And she said, well, you do have a point there. And um, in that moment, we negotiated that I would never be political again in the classroom and that Mrs. Jeff would never open the door unexpectedly um, without letting me know. And honestly, Justine, I think that day I became a better teacher. You know, that it wasn't fair to create this polemic for the children that my passion should be their passion. Although I think we did have great fun swimming on the floor as whales. Uh, And I, you know, this is a book about voice. How do we find our voice? And I think Mrs. Jeffs helped me find a voice that was more empathetic to other points of view. Which is very, very important in a whole political discourse. 
Um, and you've been involved in politics for a long time, especially like saving the Red Rock uh, desert country where you live in the wilderness in Utah. And, uh, let's talk a bit about that. You, you've appeared before Senate committees on your passion about saving the wilderness. And um, there's a point that just struck me so deeply when you were in front of a committee and the, there was a senator from your district, Senator Hansen, and you could feel that he wasn't listening to what you had to say. Could you describe that scene? It was Congressman Jim Hansen, and he was chair of the House Committee on Natural Resources. What was at stake was Utah Wilderness. And there were many of us that were testifying. And I, was, I had been asked to represent the citizens' voice advocating for 5.7 million acres in Utah. It was obvious he wasn't listening. It was obvious he was shuffling through papers, yawning, making notes on other things, talking to his colleagues. And I just stopped my testimony and said, Congressman Hansen, is there anything I can say to you that will alter your point of view regarding Utah's wildlands? I've lived here in Utah all of my life. Is there anything I can say that will adjust your perspective? And he looked at me from, you know, the rim of his glasses perched on his nose, and he said, I'm sorry, Miss Williams, there is something about your voice I cannot hear. And I don't think it was about the microphone. <laughs> no, no. But it was such a true statement. I, I was struck by, by the truth of that statement, that we're not listening to one another's voices. We're not, we're, we're in this fragmented world where here, I'm over here, and you're over there, and he's over here, and she's over there. And, and I have participated in that kind of polarity. You know, and I think that's why going back to the Jeffs, Mrs. Jeffs taught me about, she was a brilliant teacher. And I will never forget, she said, you know, one day the class was completely in chaos, and I went into the hallway, and I was practically in tears. You know, I had only been teaching a month. And they were completely out of control. And I just sort of slunk, you know, sunk into the door. And she said, Miss Williams, is there a problem? And she could hear the kids. And she said, uh, always remember the classroom is a mirror of who you are. And the classroom was a mirror of my own chaos. And I think what I love about Mrs. Jeffs, as difficult it was to teach there during those years, is how do we be clear? How do we speak from a place of authenticity? How do we create a language that opens our hearts rather than closes them? And to your point, how do we really listen to what the other person is saying? What advice do you have in that deep listening that would help us to hear one another better? I'm not sure I have any advice except for that I find it really fascinating. You know, I think we learn so much when we listen to what people are really saying. And I find that when I am in that space of presence and I really am listening to what the other person 
is, is saying and trying to say, my response comes from a much deeper place because I'm not just waiting to interject my thoughts or opinions, but really being thoughtful and letting the silence settle in between us. And that becomes this third thing. I also think that when we tell stories, um, stories do bypass rhetoric and pierce the heart. And we not only speak from a different place, but we listen from a different place. And one of the things that surprised me in thinking about my mother's journals, I thought I was writing a book about voice, but I think in many respects I've written a book about silence. And it's, it's complicated because there is silence and then there is, there are those moments that we all know all too well of being silenced. And one is chosen and the other is imposed. And I think it's important to think about those distinctions and the relationship to both listening and to voice. What is voice? How do we find it, keep it, lose it, reclaim it? And uh, in that voice that you have so well used in all of your writing, we are deeply, deeply trying to listen to each other. At least I think you are trying to listen and encouraging all of us to listen to one another. Because things. there was an article that you wrote later on um, and you quoted Gregory Bates, and I was so struck by it and how he talks about all of life is really about, is made up of relationships. All of life, that's what it is. It's relationships. And so to think that we have this one way that's the truth and arguing that with one another, where is it going to get us? I think that's such a good point, and it is all relationships. I remember after Congressman Hansen had said, there's something about your voice I cannot hear in the middle of a very formal congressional hearing. Later on, we found ourselves at Great Salt Lake at the Great Salt Lake Bird Festival. Congressman Hansen is a great lover of birds. He is from that part of Utah northern Utah. And we talked for a long time about avocets and stilts. And he's a terrific friend of my uncle. You know, they've hunted together, you know, and that's where I think the real conversation begins. That takes time. And we don't have that kind of time. You know, everyone is so distracted, so busy. And I think without taking the time, we don't have relationships. And without relationships, there is no real listening. And without real listening, I don't think we move to an authentic voice. In, in the whole political uh, arena, there, there is a lack of a woman's sensibility. Uh, you you used the, the term somewhere in your book, uh, the mother tongue is not being honored. What, what do you mean by mother tongue? Well, I think if you look in Congress and the Senate of the United States, women are not well represented. Uh, I served on the governing council of the Wilderness Society, and this was in the early 90s. Out of 25 members, I think there were three women when I was there. 
And of those three women, I would say Alice Rivlin had a very powerful voice. Um, I didn't speak for a year. I was too terrified, and I thought it was my role to listen. And I'll never forget, uh, we were in an elevator. We were going down. It was a break during the meeting. She was looking straight ahead, as was I. The elevator goes down. She says, Terry, do you have a voice? The doors opened. I said yes, and she said it would be nice to hear it. (laughs) Good advice, good advice. I'm here with Terry Tempest-Williams. She's the author of When Women Were Birds. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Terry Tempest Williams. We're talking about mother tongue. We're talking about the woman's voice. And is there more that you could say about your experience with the Wilderness Society and being challenged to speak more in some way? You know, I mentioned that there were three women on the council out of 25. Alice Rivlin was one. Um, Jane Hearn was one. And Jane was a Southern woman. She was very powerful, but she was very quiet. And so when I said one woman had a powerful voice, we all had our voices, but I think it was Alice who really showed us. She was in the Clinton administration of what that kind of assertion looked like with great humility, but as well as presence and authority. So I guess we're talking about authority. When I speak about the mother tongue, I was really influenced, Justine, at the time I was reading a book called The Tongue Snatchers by the French writer Claudine Herman. And she focuses on the French verb voler, which means to fly or to steal. And she talks about how traditionally those are the two choices we've had as women. We can flee, fly, or we can steal, take the dominant language. And what I loved about Alice Rivlin is she was saying, create your own. You know, that's the mother tongue tied to earth. So I think each of us, each woman, you know, we can speak to the mentors we've had in our lives that have taught us about what voice looks like, what it sounds like. And I don't care who we are, but I think it's always a terror to try to speak from that intuitive space to claim our authority, our authenticity. And I think that um, in thinking about my mother's blank journals, she left them to me from a place of authority. It was a conscious decision for her not to write. And that's why in many ways, my mother's journals were an interrogation. She left me with many, many questions. Terry, in speaking in that authentic voice, What happens as we are learning to speak it, especially as women, learning to speak it, what happens when it falls like a big dud in the middle of the table and not even acknowledged, which 
happened to you in the Wilderness Society? You would say something, and it was just, you hadn't even said a word. I can't tell you how many times that's happened to me. And it's a common experience, isn't it? Yes, it is. You know, you, you would listen, and then you would offer your thoughts, and then it was like, anyway, about the budget. Yes. That the language of economics um, has power. The language of the law has power. The language of science has power. But an intelligence of the heart, an emotional intelligence, or a poetic sensibility, or even a sensibility that comes from the side, from a different angle, from a different point of view, um, it asks us to form a different kind of shape of conversation. And I think as women, we need to find the confidence that we're not crazy. You know, I think my definition of craziness is when you say something out of your own direct experience and someone says, that's not true. That makes me crazy. And it's to really say, but wait a minute, this is what I am seeing. And this is what I believe is real in time and space from, from the place where I'm standing. You know, that we're speaking, our voice drops down and we're speaking, you know, in our solar plexus from our belly, not just our minds. And there's a certain kind of indignance, you know. um, I think about sometimes when I'm in a really intimidating situation, I will sit and I'm making sure that my posture is straight. I may not say anything, but that's my choice. But I am present. And I think about... Um, a line that goes directly down my back that hooks into the very core of the earth. Now, it could be argued that that is magma. It's hot magma. It's not solid. But it's fire. And I take great strength from that. I think of this time, Terry, as a, like some of the metaphors of this time or the, what science is looking at really critically right now is biology. And it's a time of biology where, where people are recognizing the, how, how the earth sustains itself in a diversity, not in a singularity, but it's a diversity of connections. And in this way, wouldn't it really, well, it's my hope that people realize that listening to that diversity of voices is only going to benefit the power of life, rather than take away from it. And I think you've asked the essential question, who benefits? Who benefits from a cacophony of voices? Who benefits from a mosaic of different people? Who benefits when it's a singular voice, when it's the voice of the economy, when it's the voice of capitalism? So I think tied to this notion of voice and silence is the question who benefits. So that's a, that's a really good question that we can be asking when we're in our deep listening, who is benefiting from this point of view. If I'm being silenced, who benefits? And I may be the greatest silencer of myself because I'm afraid. But, you know, I love Audre Lorde where she was saying, you know, we don't write because we're afraid. We don't speak because we're afraid. But we certainly speak when we're tired. We write when we're tired. We take care of our children when we're tired. So to not privilege fear in the way that we, ha- we do. I oh, love that. Beautiful. You know, every woman knows what it means to do everything when you're tired. So, you know, 
I'm, I'm afraid half the time. I'm terrified of public speaking. Um, and yet I'm being called to do that more than I would like. But as long as we realize, you know, it's not about us. After, if I stand up the first three minutes, then I'm okay. Because then I'm propelled beyond my own terror. And I'm thinking about the idea. I'm thinking what community looks like. I'm thinking from a place of anger. And how do I turn this into sacred rage? Or most hopefully, we're speaking from a, a place of, of love and compassion. And again, we return to that place of listening, to that place of fertile silence where truth can be revealed. I would love to, to talk. You mentioned and give us the whole scenario of a, a marvelous opera in your book. Uh, somehow you've, you've brought in this wonderful an opera that I had not heard of uh, by Richard Strauss, uh, and it's taken, the libretto is taken from a um, person who did a poem called uh, The Woman Without a Shadow. And shadow is a theme that comes in and out of your book. So let's talk about The Woman Without a Shadow and why this opera was really important to you. We all have mentors. We've been talking about women who have shown us the way of speech. Linda Asher is one of mine. She lives in New York. She was a former fiction editor at The New Yorker. We met when she was in Utah. We were talking over dinner about the shadow, about voice, about women in power, what we withhold, what we convey. And she said, have you ever seen De Frau Unerschatten? I didn't even know what it meant. And it's the woman without a shadow. As you say, it's Richard Strauss's opera. The libretto is written by Hugo von Hofmannsthal. I had not. I'd not even heard of it. I became completely obsessed. What I found is that this opera is rarely shown in the United States. It's known as the Mount Everest of opera. It's almost four hours long, and it's very difficult. And it's a fairy tale. Well, I became completely um, immersed in the letters between Richard Strauss and Hofmannsthal. Turns out Hofmannsthal was a union poet. He was deeply influenced by Carl Jung at the time. Everyone was talking about the shadow. And so he integrated these ideas of the feminine and the shadow into this allegory. And to make a long story shorter, it's about a woman who has no shadow and she's desperate to find one. And the woman who has the shadow is the woman who has a child. If you do not have children, then you don't have a shadow. And so... It's this tug of war between two women of how the dyer's wife, who is poor and overworked, um, she wants a life of opulence. The woman who has no children, who is the empress, desperately wants a child so that she can have a shadow. And in the end, it's how these women see each other for who they are. And ultimately, we see this as two sides of ourselves. And I love it because as women, in a way, we can't ever win. You know, women who have children wonder if, what it would be like if they didn't have children. Women who don't have children wonder what it would be like if they had children. Women who had children too early wonder what it would be like to have them later. Women who have them later wonder what it would be like if they had them earlier. You know, there are options, there are choices. And how do we embrace each other? How do we support each other? How do we realize that as women... We are living in a world of relationships and that our voices come out of those relationships. 
My mother left me her journals, and all her journals were blank. What she bequeathed to me was a relationship ongoing. What she left to me was the mystery, the mystery of voice. Talking, that's the opera. That's the opera, that, the mystery of voice. Tell me, uh, going back to the idea of children and not children, you grew up and come, came of age when there was birth control, and so that, and you mentioned earlier in the, in the interview that that was one of the things that, that defined, in some ways, the way that you were looking at the world and the choice, that we now had a choice. But you talk about how we all, as women, anytime we have intercourse, there is that possibility. There is no birth control that is totally, uh, that we can depend on totally. Uh, so you talk about how women are always, whether we have children or not, there's something that happens with every lovemaking. Can you describe a little bit what you mean? That that's really important to me. Um, the whole notion of reproductive freedom, and we are not having that that conversation now. And perhaps Justine, I could just read this one section um, that I think says it better than I can. No woman terminates a pregnancy easily. No one who has ever felt life inside her can negate that power. It is never a decision made lightly, without love or pain or a prayer toward forgiveness. Because what every woman knows each month when she bleeds is, I am not pregnant. Because what every woman understands each time she makes love is, life could be in the making now. Which is why when a woman allows a man to enter her, it is not just a physical act, but an act of surrendering to the possibility that her life may no longer be hers alone. Because until she bleeds, she will check her womb every day for the stirrings of life. Because until she bleeds, she wonders if her life will be one or two or three. Because until she bleeds, she imagines every possibility from pleasure to pain to birth to death and how she will do what she needs to do. And until she bleeds, she will worry endlessly until she bleeds. If a man knew what a woman never forgets, he would love her differently. I'm here with Terry Tempest Williams. My name is Justine Willis Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Terry Tempest Williams. 
Carrie, you just did a powerful reading about the yes and the no and the, the whether we're, we'll have children or not children and how women really view any act of lovemaking in the deepest sense, in the deepest part of our bodies. And um, you have some other writing about how we get off track from saying yes when we need to say yes or saying no when we need to say no. Can, can you share that with us, please? Yes, thank you. For far too long, we have been seduced into walking a path that did not lead us to ourselves. For far too long, we have said yes when we wanted to say no. And for far too long, we have said no when we desperately wanted to say yes. When we don't listen to our intuition, we abandon our souls. And we abandon our souls because we are afraid if we don't, others will abandon us. We've been raised to question what we know, to discount and discredit the authority of our gut. I want to know why. I regret whenever I abandon myself, but harboring regrets is making love to the past, and there is no movement here. It's not the lips of a prince that will save us, but our own lips speaking. I am growing beyond my own conditioning, breaking set with what was breaking me. I guess, Justine, you know, the gift that my mother's given me in these these empty journals is that we never figure it out. Voice is not something that we say, I have a voice, you know, end of story. It's, it's a constant refining, reassessing, uh, evolving struggle. And I will use that word struggle. You know, I love Gertrude Stein. It's a mantra of mine that we are engaged in the vitality of the struggle. You know, what every woman knows is that the act of lovemaking is not just a physical act, but a spiritual one. In the same way that I think each time we speak from our hearts in that act or gesture of compassion, that too is tied to the Spirit. And it's embodied language. Embodied language. And somehow in the speaking of it and in finding that authentic voice or having a moment when we just say, ah, this was true, not only through my throat, this was true in my heart, this was true in my womb, this is true in my feet. You Once in a while, we'll say something that feels so unified in all of who we are. And in that moment, if we have friends around us yes. that can reflect that back to us is I think one of the most magical human experiences we can ever have. And that's the sisterhood, isn't it? And it's one of the things I didn't understand about my mother. I was too young. I didn't understand that when she was in the process of dying, her dearest friends would come visit her, and they would go into the bedroom and they would close the door. I understand that now. And it doesn't mean that I'm not madly in love with Brooke. It doesn't mean that... In the years, we've been married almost 40 years, that there isn't this deep solidarity between a man and a woman. But what my women friends give me is what allows me to stand in the world. I, too, have had that experience. And I might say something, and then when it's reflected back, then you get that, that it's an encouragement 
And courage comes out of that encouragement to speak more. And And that we share our histories with each other. You know, I was with a young woman, and I loved her definition of courage, which is sustained focus. With women, we have this sustained focus, you know? Um, we, We know the secrets of our lives, and over cups of tea... We share those secrets, and and I think it what allows us it allows us to continue. I look at you, and I just I love that you have feathers in your hair, you know, and it just makes me want to go, you know, put feathers in my hair as as women who are birds. It's it's the places that we travel together, um, that we share our pain, we share our joy, and and when when we speak from that place. Um, in a voiced community, everyone flourishes. Everyone flourishes, exactly. I'd like for you to share with our listeners your experience of meeting and being with Wangari Mathai and who she was and her great contribution to the world and the planet. And there's a woman who had absolute authority and authenticity. Um, not only were her feet firmly planted on, on the earth, but her hands were in the soil. I met her when I was 29 years old. It changed my life. We were in Kenya at the UN Decade for Women. I left the formal conference and followed her into the villages. And with Wangari, I watched women in the rural villages gather seeds in the folds of their skirts. And it was through Wangari that I learned that women are carrying the environmental crisis on their backs that environmental issues are economic issues, are issues of social justice. That this is the pattern that connects. Say they were literally carrying it on their back. Say something more about that. Literally spending eight to ten hours a day in search of wood, water, fuel. Nothing abstract there. And it was Wangari, you know, I mean, talk about speaking truth to power, who was beaten, who was jailed, who was separated from her children. Um, I just, you know, I think about her every single day. I really do, and I think so many people do. I love that she has not only left a great legacy of all of the trees she's planted, but I think she showed us what a leadership from the heart looks like, and that it is tied directly to the earth. You know, what we're talking about, a, a world, a life, embodied language where it's interrelated, interconnected, that we don't live in isolation. And maybe Mrs. Jeffs was right. Maybe we should take biology out of the equation, not because it denotes sexual reproduction, but because it's too small. That it is an ecology of mind. It is an ecology of body. It is an ecology of voice. And that voice and silence are the dance. And so, um, I don't know, I've been thinking a lot about the idea of discernment. You know, how do we discern when it's appropriate to act? What is an authentic act? When is it appropriate to speak? When is it appropriate not to speak? And I think that requires our attention. My mother paid attention. She left me all her journals and her journals were blank. Um, That is what I keep learning. Her journals have become a koan that I just keep musing over. And you will never know, except that you get to keep asking the question. And isn't that where we are? That it's not, it's not that there is a one truth 
way and in life that's going to say, okay, this is it. We're going to set it in stone and set up tents around it and stop right here. And we don't have to ask any more questions. It's, it's a moving, moving feast. It's uncertainty. And isn't that at the heart of creativity? You know, I mean, in many ways, we want certainty. But it stops the creative flow. It stops the questions. And I want to live in the heart of questions. I'm getting more and more comfortable with uncertainty because it's alive. And the way into uncertainty, to me, the way we survive uncertainty is by being fully present, by paying attention, and by listening. Going back a little bit to Wangari, I I know that she has said that we must look at the whole. The minute we fall for fragmentation, we subvert the work of women. I just love her so much thinking about that. I mean, just that statement is so powerful, that fragmentation um, denigrates the work of women. Because women, I think as women, we strive for that wholeness. We hold the moon in our bellies. I, I was struck, I just want you to describe a moment that you had in the Wind River Range when you were hiking and you looked back and saw a coyote. I, it was such a poignant little piece that you described. I just think there's so much beauty in the world and so much joy. And we were at the base of Gannett Peak, the tallest uh, peak in the Wind Rivers, and all of a sudden, we were so proud of ourselves. You know, we'd been hiking all day with packs. And we looked on Gannett Peak in the snowfield and just bolting up. At, I can't imagine what the altitude, you know, the elevation was, was this beautiful coyote with this black-tinged tail, um, almost making it to the summit, stopping, turning around, and looking out over the view. How shall we live? I want to feel both the beauty and the pain of the age we are living in. I want to survive my life without becoming numb. I want to speak and comprehend words of wounding without having these words become the landscape where I dwell. I want to possess a light touch that can elevate darkness to the realm of stars. To be numb to the world is another form of suicide. What is time, sacred time, but the acceleration of consciousness? There are so many ways to change the sentences we have been given. We cannot do it alone. We do it alone. How shall we live? Once upon a time, when women were birds, there was the simple understanding that to sing at dawn and to sing at dusk was to heal the world through joy. The birds still remember what we have forgotten, that the world is meant to be celebrated. Terry, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Justine. I love you, and I'm going to go get feathers in my hair. <laughs> oh, goody, oh, yay. I've been here with Terry Timbus-Williams. If you'd like to be in touch with her, you can go to her website, find out about her activities, her writings, and that's uh, terrytempuswilliams.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Terry is the author of When Women Were Birds, 54 Variations on Voice. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3437. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.